morning to be in Mark 5, as we continue our study through the book of Mark. We come to a very interesting passage, not because there's a demon-possessed man, we've seen that already, but this one is something else entirely. So, and we live in remarkable times. Our world is full of chaos and trouble and tragedy, seemingly spilling into every waking day. Every time we turn around, something new and terrible has happened. Violence and war fill the news cycle. And this deadly virus continues to disrupt everyday life. This is not the way things were supposed to be. We were all supposed to be living longer and happier lives and zipping around in flying cars by the jet, like the Jetsons by now, right? But here we are, in a historically dark time as we have become the most technologically advanced civilization, yet find ourselves plagued by forces beyond our control. And some of them are natural. Some of them are natural, but we had a hand in causing them. And then some are supernatural, springing from a realm beyond our five senses. It's strange. We live in a time when only 46% of people claim to believe in the spiritual realm or spiritual things, yet our culture is absolutely saturated with this idea of spirituality. There are best-selling books from famous authors, movies about the supernatural starring all the top stars, uh, TV shows about, you know, ghost hunters and that sort of thing. And all of them, and there's season after season after season of these things. Everywhere you look, a world that largely claims not to believe in the supernatural consistently finds it fascinating and pays good money to be entertained by it. But then that may be part of the problem because the spiritual realm is a reality and the forces that work there are interested in far more than simply entertaining humanity. But then none of that is new either. As long as we have been around on this earth, people have been interested in the supernatural realm. Thankfully, the scriptures address it in various places, offering both stories and teaching. And while we have already seen Jesus cast out demons, demonstrating the power of his kingdom and displaying his authority over them, we have come to a place in the book of Mark where he is going to have a much more personal interaction with them. This specific interaction has a very unusual backdrop that plays an important role in this part of the story as well. The location and the people who are not the normal crowd for Jesus and his kingdom teachings or displays of authority. That makes this special, makes it stand out. So let's dig in to the story beginning in Mark 5 verse 1. If you will follow along with me there. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so in order to fully understand what is going on in this passage, we need to consider the context of the story and talk a bit about the area where this took place and the people who lived there. The events of these verses occur in an area called the Decapolis, which was a group of ten cities spread out on the far side of the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee. They had a shared language, a shared culture, and a political status in the Roman Empire at the time. Some of the cities were originally founded by Alexander the Great, anywhere between 338 and 337, as he moved through the area, leaving pockets of soldiers behind in various locations to colonize the area with his gospel, the, the Greek gospel, which was Hellenism that idea of the Greek worldview. Others were established by the Ptolemaic dynasty that Alexander left behind in Egypt, which then ruled over most of Judea until the year 198. And that's when the Hasmonean dynasty sort of rose up and took Judea back for the Jewish people. Still others were founded later when the Seleucid dynasty ruled the region after Alexander's empire was divided. That's a history lesson, but the thing is that all of them were firmly in existence by the year 63 when Pompey came through, defeated the Jewish Hasmonean dynasty, and then ruled Judea. The people of these Hellenized cities that were there welcomed Pompey as a liberator, and they happily accepted Roman military protection. 
after firmly establishing Roman rule in the Judean area, Pompey then officially recognized the Decapolis region and awarded them autonomy under Roman protection. These sea states then operated freely under Roman protection and were never part of, the, of Herod's dynasty or the tetrarchy of his sons that followed his death. And Rome funneled considerable resources into that area over the years, constructing paved streets, amphitheaters, temples, and other public buildings. Now, one specific structure which popped up in each of these towns uh, was called a calibe. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, they were small, open-air temples dedicated to the worship of Caesar. Uh, it was the imperial cult, as it was known at the time, was highly popular in this region, and these calibe served as sort of their church. That's where they would go to offer incense and worship. Beginning with Augustus Caesar, who imagined himself a god, each of these Calibe temples would have not only a statue of whichever Caesar constructed it, but an inscription stating that Caesar is Lord. And that should definitely sound familiar to our ears, right? Now, all of this brings up the question, why would Jesus travel to this Gentile area? What was his purpose in going there? Why would he go anywhere near these people? What was he thinking? After all, the, these were unclean Gentiles. They did not observe the Torah or its purity regulations, which Jesus and his disciples would have been under. They didn't follow the cleanliness guidelines concerning what they could touch or what they could eat. And everyone knew that they herded pigs and feasted on pork regularly, and that's a huge no-no for the Jews. Even Peter, a few years after this, would have to receive a very specific vision from God in order to go preach to Gentiles and enter their home. And he still would not sit down and eat with them if other Torah-observant Jews were around. That's how he and Paul sort of got into their disagreement. Now, Peter was simply following the Torah himself. Leviticus 11, 7 through 8, and Deuteronomy 14, 8 make it clear not to eat pigs because it would make a person unclean, which meant by extension that even being around people who ate pigs would make you unclean. Jesus even stepping foot off the boat onto the shore of this place would have made most Jews consider him unclean. And yet, that's exactly what he did. And not only did he travel to and set foot on Gentile lands where pig, pigs roamed the herds uh, on the hillsides and were part of the local fair, the place where the boat landed was apparently near a graveyard where tombs were. Another way to become unclean as a Jew is to touch or be near in proximity to a dead body. Walking by a graveyard was not something that Jews did. They placed their graves well outside the city walls, and people who took care of the bodies spent a lot of time being considered unclean and having to follow a whole slew of rules about it. 
In fact, in Numbers 19, 11 through 18, we discover that they would remain unclean for seven days. And they had to be cleansed not only by water, by a bath, but then they had to be sprinkled with the ashes of a ritual sacrifice. But this is where Jesus hopped off the boat. And when he did, a man came running up to him. Not just any man, mind you, not just anybody. A man possessed by demons, by unclean spirits, the text calls them, who lived among the tombs in the graveyard with the dead, not far from where the pigs were being herded. This is just a chaotic storm of no, right? Well, what else do we know about this man? Well, Mark described him as a man no one could bind, even with a chain, because he would tear the chains apart and rip off the shackles. This tells us that the man had caused at least some amount of trouble before if they've tried to chain him and bind him. Mark also relates that he was always going around crying out and cutting himself with stones, which meant he was making a constant racket day and night. Also, that he was nearly always bleeding, which means he would have been covered with sores, scabs, and scars. Can you even imagine this man? What it must have been like to encounter him, or or what he himself was going through. I read in one commentary that it's likely the disciples didn't even get out of the boat because of all this. That all these factors kept them from engaging. I don't know if that's true. Maybe. They may have gotten out. They may have not. We don't know. But I just find that fascinating. But not Jesus. We we read it right here. Jesus stepped out of the boat and met the man. And in the course of the conversation that followed, we come to find out a bit more. And these details sort of fill out the picture that Mark is painting for us here with Jesus. Now, the way the Greek works here in the text implies that Jesus actually spoke first. That's not the way it reads, but that the meaning is there, that Jesus spoke first, that Jesus saw the man from a distance and coming towards him and was commanding the demon come out of him, like as he saw the man coming towards him. And to which the unclean spirit acknowledged who Jesus was, got it right, right off the bat, and then begged him for mercy, which is crazy, right? Because I've heard this preached along the lines of the demon sort of bowing up his chest and puffing it out and acting all tough, and I'm, you know, this and that and the other. Maybe like he was trying to intimidate Jesus, the son of the most high God. On the contrary, I think this demon knew it was in trouble. Because it seems that it begged Jesus earnestly because it didn't want to be tortured or sent out of the country. That doesn't sound like a demon being all tough. It sounds like fear. But that's an odd request, right? Don't, Don't torture us or send us out of the country. This had a bit to do with its name. When Jesus asked, the unclean spirit answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And this is important for a couple of reasons. First, the term legion wasn't really a name so much as a description. In the only case of a demon ever claiming any kind of name, 
It reflected the power and might of the dominant empire of the time. Because legion was a Roman military term, and it typically designated a force of anywhere from around 5,300 to 6,000 soldiers. They were the most powerful military in the Mediterranean world at the time, and they enforced the Pax Romana wherever they went. And that Pax Romana, that means the Roman peace. It may sound great until we realize it meant do things our way or die a horrible, torturous death. That was the Pax Romana. And it makes the fact that Legion was begging not to be tortured all the more ironic, right? Because Legion had some hand in torturing others. But it also sets up this encounter as a sort of confrontation between two powers. The power of Caesar and the Roman Empire on one side with its demonic undercurrents, and the power of Jesus and his kingdom on the other side. This matters because of all the messianic expectations floating around in the Jewish world at the time. Many thought that when Messiah showed up, he would be a military leader who would seize power and defeat and banish the Romans forever, reestablishing Israel as a nation. Jesus would, but not quickly. And not with a sword or military might, but with the power and authority of his word. And that's what we're about to see. Legion had conquered this man and set up a, a military stronghold and base of operations inside of him for whatever was happening in that area. This guy had no life. They had taken it away. They had left him naked, raving, and alone. There was no one more unclean or more alone than this man. And then Jesus stepped out of a boat near a graveyard and a herd of pigs to speak with this unclean man full of unclean spirits. We claim to follow Jesus, but how many of us would do something like this? How many of us would step beyond the safety of our familiar traditions and interact with a person who was so different than us in every single way? We have trouble loving each other. We have difficulty getting along with members of our own congregations sometimes. We can hardly stand folks in other denominations. And we tend to fight over a lot of the dumb stuff as Christians. In this passage, Jesus went against every conceivable Jewish, religious, and cultural norm and showed love to someone who probably would have killed him if the time was right and the opportunity presented itself. Yet in this moment, recognizing Jesus and his authority and power, this immensely powerful, chain-breaking, shackle snapping supernatural legion immediately backed down and begged for mercy. And then, as if trying to bargain, legion begged to be sent into the pigs. 
which Jesus allowed, at which point they left the man and entered the pigs, driving them down the steep hillside into the sea where they drowned. We don't know if demons can swim, but when we realize that Jesus and the Jews saw the sea as this sort of abyss, that was this metaphorical meaning, the, 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 any big body of water was sort of like an abyss. The very clear picture being presented here is that the power of Jesus overwhelmed and defeated the power of both Rome and the unclean spirits behind it and drove them into the abyss. N.T. Wright puts it like this. If they read books like Daniel, they would understand the sea is the place where the monsters come from. And the monsters were like cartoon characters standing in for the big hitters on the world's political scene. Rome was the monster of all monsters. Rome was unclean. Rome was a nation of pigs. And the best place for Rome was back in the sea. So Jesus was doing two things here. He was freeing this man with a purpose, and we'll get to that in a minute. He was revealing the true power of the kingdom of God. The power to eradicate the forces of darkness, however strong they might be. The power to topple any earthly empire without ever raising a weapon. The power to walk boldly yet humbly into a fierce confrontation with a seemingly overpowered enemy and come out peacefully unscathed on the other side of it. Are we ready to enter this kind of battle? Are we ready to follow Jesus into the fray? As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Is this the battle we are waging? Or are we busy wasting time on all the wrong things? Worrying instead of praying. Shaking our heads instead of getting our hands dirty in the messy reality of loving and serving others. What is it we're doing? As we pick it back up in verse 14, the demons are gone. The power of evil was vanquished. Man was free. And then the local townspeople found out and came out to see what was going on. And they did not like what they discovered. There's a number of reasons for this, but the primary reason seems to the primary reasons seem to include their fear of the kind of power Jesus displayed, as well as the serious economic impact that they were facing as a result. I mean, we're talking 2,000 pigs here. That's a big deal. So in verse 17, they begged Jesus to leave, to get back in his boat and sail back across the sea 
and leave them alone. Can you imagine? Seeing one of your townsfolk made well and whole, made free, and then wanting to get rid of the person who did it? What's fascinating is that that's what Jesus did. When they asked him to leave, he honored their wish, he hopped back in the boat, and he's ready to go. Which seems to point to the idea that Jesus had done everything he went over there to do. Freeing this one man was the whole purpose. Showing his disciples the extent and reach of his authority and power is clearly a secondary intention, along with displaying the kind of Messiah that he wanted to be. The kind who faced military might with true power, the power of love. The kind who would sacrifice his life for the sake of all mankind at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders and Roman military might under Pilate's command, only to overpower death itself and walk out of his tomb so that we might have life as well. Amen. That's exactly what Jesus gave this man. Life. Freedom. The unclean spirits were gone. The unclean pigs were gone. The nakedness was gone. The tombs were no longer his home. His entire life was changed. As Jesus returned to the boat, the man begged to go with him. He wanted to follow Jesus and be by his side. But Jesus had a mission for him, something different. And the way he would follow Jesus would be to go and tell others about the mercy of the Lord. Jesus didn't tell him to go and follow Torah. He didn't tell him to make his way to the temple and offer a sacrifice for his sin. He didn't even tell him to get baptized, as strange as that might seem. He just commissioned him as the first Gentile missionary and sent him on his way. Mark 7, 31 through 37, reveals that when Jesus returned to this area sometime later, the people there were no longer afraid of him. In fact, they brought him a man who was deaf and mute so that Jesus might heal him, and he did. And then in Mark 8, we see an instance of Jesus feeding 4,000 in this same area during the same time period. And it almost seems as if the man who had been possessed was telling everyone what Jesus had done for him, just like Jesus asked him to. Think about that. This man had one encounter with Jesus and then faithfully proclaimed his mercy. To the point where when Jesus returned, not only did people bring him a man in need of healing, but a crowd of 4,000 gathered to hear his teaching on the kingdom. And these were Gentiles, not even Jews, not even looking for a Messiah. Are we being faithful to what Jesus told us to do? Are we telling people of his mercy? of how much the Lord has done for us, of how he has given us life and 
freedom from everything that would oppress us? Are we telling people about the kingdom of God, about how cleansing and life and freedom are available to anyone in God's kingdom through Jesus? And that this kingdom is not some far-off future city in the clouds, but is a reality among us right here and now. Because we're where the Holy Spirit dwells, right? The place where heaven and earth meet and are being sewn back together so that we might be whole. This isn't the stuff we're talking about. Why not? What reason is good enough? This man, he wasn't trained. He didn't have a seminary degree. He hadn't even been around Jesus for more than a few hours. And yet Jesus gave him a purpose and a calling and sent him out to proclaim the good news and that's exactly what he seems to have done. So what reason can we come up with for not doing the same? This man's story is amazing, but no more amazing than what Jesus has done for each and every one of us, showing us mercy of the exact same sort as he did this man. Because every single one of us was unclean and living like we belonged with dead people. Every single one of us was in a desperate need of deliverance. Every single one of us was living under the oppression of powers far too great for us. And yet, Jesus stepped out of heaven, showed up on the shore of our lives, delivered us, and then gave us a purpose and a calling. If I sound really passionate about all this, it's because I've been dealing with the conviction that I need to be more purposeful about telling people what Jesus has done for me. And I've been spending a good deal of time listening for the voice of God, and I'm convinced that what I'm hearing is exactly what Jesus told this man. So I want to tell people that I've been delivered, I've been freed. I've been given life beyond measure. Listen close, church. If that's not what we are doing, we can go ahead, shut the doors, sell the building, spend Sunday mornings at home like everyone else. But I don't believe that's what any of us want. I believe we want to see people's lives changed and the kingdom grow and Jesus be glorified and honored. I believe we want to see people walking in these doors, wanting to know more about Jesus, or meeting us for lunch and wanting to know more about his kingdom. And the question is, are we ready and willing to do our part, whatever that looks like, be faithful to what Jesus said, just like this man was? Because if we are, Let's, let's do it. Let's get busy with it. Okay? Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come before you. Your word rests on our hearts and minds. 
pray, Father, that the Spirit would take the story that we've looked at this morning and all the weight of it, the reality of it, the truth packed into just those few verses. Make it alive inside of us like a burning fire that can't be put out. May we be compelled by what's going on there, not only in realizing that we are just like that man, but the Father, that there are others around us who are still like him, who are still in a very dark place, who need the light of your love. And may we be the way they experience that as we interact with them in this place and wherever we may go. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn. The altars are open if you need to come and pray. If you need to speak with me, I'll be down here. If you speak with me afterwards, that's fine as well. Uh, will you stand with me as we sing?